Well, continuing our series in the first epistle of Peter, we have come, as you know, to chapter 5, and we are entering today, verse 5, as we continue this section of practical exhortations that comes toward the end of Peter's epistle. Verses 1 through 4 of this chapter address elders, that is, pastors, and we dealt with that section over the last two weeks. Verse 5, the first part, addresses young people, and then in the middle of the verse, Peter widens his scope to address everyone, and he continues to talk to all the members of the congregation with a number of practical injunctions down through verse 9. We're going to take verse 5 as our preaching text for today. The first half, an exhortation to young people. And then the second half begins the exhortations to all members of the church, whatever age. And it might appear at first that these two parts are unrelated, but I think we shall discover a very obvious common thread that ties them together when we read in 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A word to the wise. Let those who are wise hear and heed. There are two parts in our text today. First of all, a word to young people, namely learn to submit. And secondly, a word to everyone, which is to develop humility. A word to young people. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. The general concept is not difficult to discover. It is an admonition, an exhortation to submission. But closer examination does raise a number of questions as to exactly how to understand this statement by Peter, inspired, as we know, by the Spirit of God. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And some of the questions that need resolution are, number one, who are the young people being addressed? Number two, what is the significance of that opening statement, that opening word, likewise? And number three, who are the elders that Peter has in mind? First of all, who are the young people being addressed? Likewise, you younger people, seems straightforward enough in the English. But as we look at this carefully, we learn that the Greek word underlying it is a masculine plural noun. And therefore, you'll find in several of the modern translations that it is translated young men rather than young people. You'll find it that way in the New American Standard and also in the NIV. So is Peter addressing this to young men or is he addressing it to young people is the question. And if he is addressing it to young men as opposed to young ladies, what particular young men does he have in mind? Is he talking about younger church officers who ought to submit themselves to older church officers, junior elders or or deacons or junior deacons or various things have been suggested? But the fact of the matter is we don't find any concepts like that junior elders, junior deacons in the Bible. And so if those things developed later on, I don't think that they would have found expression or even thought in Peter's mind at this early stage. And so I don't think that's the answer. 
I think we do need to understand it as translated in my version as all young people and understand that this is the common usage of the male noun to include both men and women. And we find that often in the Bible, though more often with the more general word for men, people. Uh, In this case, it's a little bit different word, and that makes it more unusual. But nevertheless, I think the same concept holds true here. The old King James says, for example, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Does that just mean men as opposed to women, or does that mean Anybody, male or female, who is found in Christ? Well, we all know the answer to that. Of course, that's everybody. And frequently, the Bible uses the noun man, or plural noun men, to indicate people, men and women, male and female. And I think we've got exactly the same thing here. And Peter is addressing young people. Likewise, you younger people, male and female, And he's talking, no doubt, to teens and to young singles and maybe even to some of the younger married people. Perhaps those who are roughly 30 years of age and under are those that he's addressing specifically in this injunction. The second question is, what is the significance of the word likewise? And that's very important to understanding what Peter is saying here. Likewise. You young people, submit yourselves to your elders, because that word likewise is both a transitional word as well as a connecting word. And that will help us to answer the next question that we're going to get to in a moment, I think. But this tells us that whatever Peter is now saying to the younger people does have some connection with what has gone before. There is a thread of commonality in what he says now to young people and what he said previously to elders. So let's remind ourselves of what he said in verses 1 through 4. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, Not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And so, what is the connection between this injunction and what has preceded then in verses 1 through 4. In general terms, we could say that Peter is enjoining younger people to have similar attitudes to those that he commends, yea, commands to the elders. But I think even more specifically, taking up the the last statement, verse 4, and moving into verse 5, I think he's saying something like this, as elders submit to the Chief shepherd, so younger people are to submit to the under-shepherds. It's the whole principle of authority. You remember one time Jesus was implored to come heal the servant of a centurion. We find this account in Luke chapter 7. 
And as he started to go to the centurion's home, a man obviously of some significant wealth and influence, a high-standing man in society, the Jews came to Christ and said, please heal his servant. He's worthy because he built our synagogue. That means he paid for its construction. He was obviously a wealthy man and therefore one that would be considered quite high in society, and especially so in a day that was much more class-conscious than our own. But as Jesus started toward the centurion's house, the centurion sent out a servant and said, "Don't, Don't bother to come to my house. I'm not worthy that you should enter into my house. And then he said this. He said, For I am a man under authority also. And I say to my servant, Go, and he goes, and to my servant, Come, and he comes. And Jesus said this. He said, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now that's been a puzzling statement to some. What is the connection between what the centurion said and this display of great faith? Well, he understood the principle of authority. And what he's saying, and some of the things that he says you have to read between the lines and understand, but Jesus understood it clearly. What he's saying is, I am a man under authority. I'm under a hierarchy that eventually goes all the way back to Caesar in Rome. This centurion had a commander over him, and that general had a commander over him, and eventually it got back to Rome. And there's a clear chain of authority. I'm a man under authority, and I recognize that you're a man under authority too, and I know that you are also a man like I am that has authority. I'm a man who exercised authority, but I'm under authority. And I say to those who are under me, do what I tell you, and they do it, but I have to answer to a higher authority. And he was saying, I recognize the same thing in you, Jesus, though, of course, in the spiritual realm. And I know you don't have to come into my home to heal my servant. You can send, you can send angels. You can command others to go and take care of that for you. You don't have to come. And the reason you have this authority is because you are under the authority of Almighty God. And Jesus said, wow, that's one of the greatest displays of faith that I've ever seen. Well, it's something similar here, I think. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Even as... Pastors who have authority in the congregations must recognize themselves to be under authority to the chief shepherd. So young people in the congregation need to recognize themselves as being under the authority of the under shepherds. And therefore, that answers the third question, who are the elders that Peter has in mind? And again, the word itself could be understood in a couple of different ways. It could be understood as all the older people in the church in a general sense. And that's really the way that many translations take it. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders and your those who are older than you. I guess the way that's translated, it could be understood either way. And some have argued that Peter is here enjoining the young people to submit themselves to all of the older people in the church. And they remind us that there's a similar switch in the concept of elder in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where you have, for example, in verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, 
but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. There the same word is the idea of an older person rather than an elder, a pastor, one who holds the office of a pastor. And yet later on, in the very same chapter, 1 Timothy 5.17, you read, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And there the same word is used of an office, a position, a man who holds the office of elder. So verse 1, elder, older person. Verse 17, elder, pastor. Is there something similar here? And some think so. In verses 1 through 4, Peter's talking about elders, pastors. In verse 5, he's talking about older people, older members of the church. And I have wrestled with this uh, virtually all week long as I have been studying and preparing for my message today. And uh, for my purposes, I have concluded that I think Peter is very likely talking about elders in the position of eldership, of pastors. And let me give you three reasons why I think that's so. The first one is that word likewise that we looked at and the fact that there's an obvious connection here. If that word likewise weren't there, maybe a stronger argument could be made for a distinction. But because that's there, and it is a word, not only of transition but also of connection, there's something of commonality here. It seems, therefore, that the word elder needs to be understood in the same way in verse 5 that it is in verses 1 through 4. And secondly, it just seems that normal reading, even if the word likewise was not there, if you are reading this chapter for the first time and you read the word elders in verses 1 through 4, and that obviously is referring to the office, it would take a pretty good switch in thinking to come to that same word in verse 5 and attach an entirely different definition to it. If that were the case, I would think that Peter, by the Spirit of God, would have given us some verbal clue that he was making a transition. They're too close together. In in 1 Timothy 5, the example that some point to, to try to make this bear a different meaning in verse 5, is separated by 16 verses. 1 Timothy 1.1, elder, older persons. 1 Timothy 5.17, elder, pastor. But you've got 16 verses in between in which there is a lot of break in the connection. But here the connection is so much more close that it's really hard to imagine a break. Both the word likewise and the proximity, I think, would indicate that. And I think furthermore, that word be subject also points in the same direction because that word is very strong. It's a military term. It means to line up under authority. It has a reference to this rank of of the... uh, captain being over the sergeant and the colonel being over the captain and the general being over the colonel and so forth, to to line up under military term. And that's a term that indicates submission to authority. And if you're talking just about older people, you would have to take that word submit and blend it more in the direction of give honor to, give deference to, rather than the strict idea of exact rank and submission to. And so for all of these reasons, I think it's best to understand this as the elders, the men who serve as elders in the church. And therefore, I think this is the intended exhortation. Young people, submit to the church elders. Submit yourselves to your pastors. Now, if you understand the text that way, then the question is, well, why is Peter singling out young people for this exhortation 
Wouldn't that exhortation apply to all members of the church? Shouldn't he have said something more like the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 13, verse 17, when he said to everybody, obey those who have the rule over you who watch for your souls. And I don't have an obvious answer to that question. I can only speculate. But I do observe, and I think you would agree with me, that young people tend to be a little bit more headstrong. And as they are growing older and beginning to gain independence from the authority of their parents and other authorities in their lives, sometimes they overdo it and they want to cast off all authority, all legitimate authority in their life, and to exercise total independence. And sometimes, therefore, they do need a special reminder. Young people, don't forget that even though you're growing up and are exercising more independence from parental authority, you are still under spiritual authority. You are still under a variety of authorities, civic and employer-employee relationships and so forth, but specifically the one that Peter is concerned about here, don't forget that you are still under the authority of the eldership in the church. But if that is a specific command to the young, we all realize that it has a general application to all of us. We all need to learn to submit to God-ordained authority in our lives, whatever that may be. We need to recognize what those authorities are and submit to them gladly and willingly in a Christ-honoring way. Because spiritual growth flourishes with attitudes of submission and shrivels with an unsubmissive spirit. That really, I think, is what Hebrews 13:17 is saying. Obey those who have rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. That would be unprofitable for you. For you to have an unsubmissive spirit toward those that God tells you to be submissive to is unprofitable for you spiritually. That shrivels your spiritual growth. That shrivels your progress in sanctification. But conversely, as you submit yourself sweetly to those that God has ordained as authorities in your life, then you will flourish and prosper spiritually. So young people, some of you who are, who are kicking up your heels and, and, uh, and trying to exercise a little bit more independence and feeling headstrong, young people, submit yourselves. Submit yourselves unto the elders. But we move from this first instruction to young people to learn to submit to a second instruction that broadens out to everyone, and that's the instruction to develop humility. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I should mention that that phrase, be submissive to one another, is not found in many of the manuscripts and doesn't have a lot of authority and is, is not found in the majority of versions. And I think it, the context would indicate, particularly if my interpretation is correct as to what, what Peter is saying specifically in the first part of verse 5, then I think probably... 
it would be best not to understand that, but to skip straight to the humility injunction. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there is a relationship, of course, between submission and humility. And this is what begins to tie together the two parts of the verse, even though it could be seen as one injunction, another injunction, one to the young people, one to everybody, one to submission, another to humility, and not a whole lot that ties them together. As we realize and think about it for not just too long, we realize that there is quite a connection there. In order to submit, you have to be humble. You have that, that is an act of humility to voluntarily, to willingly submit, isn't it? And so there's an obvious connection. And the point is that everybody must exercise humility regardless of where you fit into areas of submission. And so we have here the need for humility, which is a need of every individual. All of you, yes, all of you, be clothed with humility. That phrase that is clearly in all the Greek manuscripts is for some reason omitted in the NIV, but it needs to be there. All of you, all of you need to be humble. Young as well as old, male as well as female, elders as well as members, all of you be clothed with humility. This is something that characterizes all the people of God, or ought to. It's a need for every relationship. All of you be clothed with humility toward one another. Toward one another. That's telling us, I think, that there is a need for Humility for the local body to be able to function properly. As members of the body of Christ, fallen sons and daughters of Adam, redeemed as we are by the grace of God and saved and given new hearts, nevertheless, we still have more of that Adamic pride than we ought to. And that pride is what causes the frictions and problems that mar the relationships of life, all of them actually. You can apply this to marriage problems. When there are marriage problems, what's the problem? Pride. Now you can find other manifestations of pride and say it's this and it's that and it's this and it's that. That would be true. It's all of those other things as well. But you can trace it back. What's the problem? Pride, we might as well acknowledge it, we might as well admit it, so we can understand it and work on it. Pride, that's the problem. When we're having difficulties in our marriage relationships and when we're having problems with our employer, what's the problem? Pride, on somebody's part. You say, well, it's all on his part, not on mine. Well, I hope so. But there's pride there somewhere. That's that's what's causing the problem. There's pride. And when there's problems in the church, in the body of believers... Uh, What's the problem? Pride. On his part, not mine. I hope so. But if you don't see any in yourself, then you probably have more than you realize. And you're blind to it. Pride. 
And Peter tells us, therefore, that there's a need for purposeful action. Clothe yourselves is really a better translation. Yes, all of you, be clothed with humility, but the idea is clothe yourselves with humility. The verb actually can be either middle or passive, and that allows for the variance in translation, either clothe yourself or be clothed. But the very word that Peter uses seems to indicate to an action on our part. Because this word, this verb means to tie a piece of clothing onto yourself as an apron. To tie a piece of clothing on yourself, such as an apron or some other piece of clothing, I guess I should say. The verb itself means to tie a piece of clothing on yourself. And probably what Peter had in mind was the white aprons that slaves tied upon themselves, sometimes white scarves if a, if a apron wasn't suitable to their particular uh, job and occupation. But most of the time, slaves in that day tied a white apron upon themselves primarily to identify themselves as slaves. So others would know that they were slaves. You might have wondered, how did they know who the slaves were in the Roman Empire in that day? When, basically speaking, you might say everybody looked alike. Clothing. They were required to tie a piece of white clothing upon themselves, generally an apron. And, of course, the act of doing that itself was a reminder to the slave of his status. Every morning when he got up and dressed himself and tied that apron around him, it was a reminder that he was not a free man, he was a slave. And that's the word that Peter uses. That activity of tying an apron on reminded the slave of his position and informed others of his position. And Peter says, we need to do the same. Every morning when we get up, we need to consciously tie the apron of humility on. To remind ourselves that we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirits, which are God's. You're not here to please yourself. You're here to please your owner, your master. You're his servant. You're his slave. Tie on the apron of humility to remind yourself of that. And let that humility be the badge of your identification to others. May they see your humility and by that know that you belong to Christ. That doesn't come easily. That doesn't come naturally. Humility as opposed to pride. And in the Roman Empire, with the influence of Greek culture, this and Roman culture as well, Humility was not valued, it was discouraged, it was disdained. People were expected to be proud and to demonstrate their pride and to evidence humility was thought to be weakness. In fact, that would be thought to be the characteristic of a slave, not of any free man, surely. And so attitudes of humility would very much cause Christians to stand out. And that's what Peter is telling us, all of us. And what is humility? Well, humility is lowliness of mind, self-abasement, willingness to serve even in the lowest tasks. When you 
carry that attitude, if that's an attitude of humility, when you find yourself resisting that, then what is that? That's pride. Paul describes humility, I think, quite well in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, when he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's humility. That's the opposite of pride. What is humility? It's Christ-likeness. Remember the words of Christ in Matthew eleven twenty-nine. He said in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he said this in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Learn from me. What shall we learn from you, Jesus? Learn how I am lowly and gentle in heart. And if you'll learn that quality, then you will find rest for your soul. But if you resist that quality, you won't find rest for your soul. Pride will cause unrest, but humble submission will bring you rest. And these are things that we can put on if we will. Too often we have the attitude, well, I'd like to have an attitude like that. Lord, give me, give me an attitude of humility and submission, and then I'll act that way. And that's true, we should pray like that. But like so many things, we can do it even if we don't feel like it, and the act of obedience will help us develop that right attitude. We can consciously put others ahead of ourselves even when we don't feel like it. We can consciously serve others even if we don't feel like it. We can consciously take the lowly place and do the lowly task even if we don't immediately feel like it. We can remind ourselves, this is what our Lord wants us to do. This is Christ-likeness. This is what I will do. It's kind of like agape love. It's something that we will to do and then the proper feelings often follow. It's an act of doing of putting the other person first. That's, that's really what, what agape love is, the, the self-sacrificing attitude that says, I will serve the other person, I will put him first. And even when our, the right attitude isn't there, if we'll engage the right actions that we know to be correct, that many times will begin us down the road with the Holy Spirit working within, of course, of developing the inward attitude that ought to go with it. And this is exactly the same way. We can put on humility, and we'll need to do that. We'll need to think about it. We'll need to do it deliberately and consciously because our first response usually is the opposite. Nobody's got to tell me what to do. Don't expect me to take that lowly place. Don't expect me to do that job. Don't expect me. Uh-huh. Where'd that come from? Do you see Adam in the garden before the fall written all over that attitude? Or after the fall, I should say. Not before the fall. Adam in the garden after the fall written all over that attitude? We're fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And that is the wrong attitude. So we have got to deliberately think about this and 
probably several times throughout the day, we have to, as it were, mentally take that white apron of humility and tie it on again. How, how does it keep getting loose and getting off, you know? We tie it on and it, it flies off somewhere down the road as we're going through life. And so we've got to reach back and tie it back on again and tie it back on again, don't we? And there's a primary reason why we should do this. Why is that, Peter? For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we ought to do this. We ought to do this for the obedience reason, because God says so. That's reason enough. If God commands it, we ought to do it. And we ought to do it for social reasons, as we've already seen. It's necessary for good relationships. If we want to have good relationships with others, we're going to have to develop greater humility. But here's another reason, a powerful reason, why we ought to do this. God, Peter tells us, resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in saying that, he's quoting Proverbs 3.34. We read it earlier today. But he's quoting it in the Septuagint, so it comes across a little bit different from what you will find it in your English Bible. You see, it was translated from Hebrew into Greek and from Greek into English in the New Testament and straight from Hebrew into English in the Old Testament. And sometimes there are things that that change in that kind of translation. But this is the way Peter quotes it, directed by the Holy Spirit of God to do so. So this is God's word. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Peter wasn't the only one who quoted that same text from the Old Testament. James did the same thing. In James chapter 4, verse 6, he said, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who are the proud? Well, looking at Proverbs 34, you can kind of work down through that passage to the verses prior to verse 34. And you can see that the writer of Proverbs there and throughout the book of Proverbs helps to define the pride. And he defines them oftentimes as mockers, those who see themselves as superior to others, those who think their opinions are superior to everybody else's. And those who look down upon others and, and speak despairingly, disparagingly of others. And those are the proud that God resists. He resists them. Another military term. Second military term in the same text. And this military term means to set in array against. To assemble a host for battle. To sound the call to arms and to assemble and get ready for battle. That's what God does when He sees pride. God arrays His armies against the proud. Just a way of strengthening the concept that God really does seriously oppose the proud. And he has a lot of different soldiers at his disposal to do that. He can do that in our lives in so many different ways. Those who are self-sufficient, 
God resists those who trust in themselves instead of in God. God resists those who live to bring glory to themselves instead of living to bring glory to God. God resists those who are arrogant, whether elders or young people or everyone, other members of the church, wherever God sees arrogance, God resists the proud. Why should we be proud anyway when we realize we don't have anything that we didn't receive from God? We're not responsible for it. We have no reason to take credit for it. We're nothing apart from God's grace. Remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Good text. We ought to, we ought to write that text out and put it on our mirror, put it on our refrigerator and mind, remind ourselves of that every day. What do I have that I can take credit for? You say, I I have a higher IQ than other people. And where'd you get that? No reason for pride. I can sing better than some people. Where'd you get that? No reason for pride. I'm better at my job than most of the other people on the job. Where did you get that ability? And on and on it goes. What do you have that you did not receive? No reason for pride. God resists the proud. But God gives grace to the humble. Grace is undeserved favor. God loves to give favor to the undeserving. The proud consider themselves to be deserving. So they don't get any grace. The humble recognize that they are undeserving and God delights to give grace to the humble. God humbles us in order to grant the gift of salvation. He doesn't give that to anyone who's proud. That's why we go through wrestlings and strivings. That's why we come under conviction of sin. That's why we see ourselves as Sinners, we have to be humbled. We have to be brought low before God is going to grant the grace of salvation. He humbles us to bring us to Christ. And the grace that is necessary for salvation is also necessary for us to live the Christian life. God will therefore need to humble us along the way if we're going to live a life that's pleasing unto Him. We need His grace to do that, and God will give it to the humble, but He will not give it to the proud, not even to proud Christians. So how do we develop humility? And let me give you some suggestions here in closing. How do we develop humility when we see how important it is? Well, number one, remember the humility you experienced when God first brought you to Christ. Think back on that time. Think about how God brought you to repentance. That took a heap of humbling, if I can put it that way. God had to show us our sins, didn't he? 
God had to make us feel ashamed of our sins. God had to make us realize that we are deserving of condemnation. We deserve His wrath, not His mercy, not His grace. Many times God so worked in our lives to humble us that we had to go to people that we had wronged and make things right, and that's humbling. But many times that's part of what God does in showing us our sins and bringing us down to where He can dispense that undeserved grace to us. In fact, if you haven't experienced anything like what I'm describing, then what makes you think you've been saved? This is always the way God works to bring people to Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They and they alone. That's describing saved people and the attitudes that they will have. That's describing the people that are going to heaven and the attitudes that they will have. And it's attitudes of humility and meekness and mourning and spiritual poverty. And it's describing the humbling process. So if we need to develop more humility, number one, I would suggest that you think back on the way God humbled you when he first brought you to Christ. And secondly, I would say realize that God continues to humble us all throughout our earthly sojourn. That initial humbling's not the end. There's more to come. Sometimes we call this sanctification, and there are different aspects of sanctification and different uh, ways of looking at it, but I'd like for you to look at it this way today. Sanctification, in many ways, is just further humbling. We have to humble us some more, and humble us some more, and humble us some more, so that we can be sanctified, made more holy, made more Christ-like in our life. And why is that? It's because we continue to manifest sinful pride. That doesn't get eradicated when we're saved. That's not all gone. And that won't be until we get to heaven. We still carry far too many lingering remnants of our Adamic nature and of that Adamic pride. And because we still have that, then we need to continue to be humbled. And that is God's goodness and mercy that He would do that to us because God wants to bestow more grace upon us, but God doesn't bestow grace upon the proud. So he graciously continues to humble us throughout our earthly sojourn. And God knows exactly what we need to humble us, to diminish our pride. And therefore it behooves us to submit to God's humbling providences. God knows how to bring things into our lives that humble us. Sometimes we might say, Embarrass us. And why is that? Because of pride. That's why it embarrasses us. Otherwise, it wouldn't, but it does. And so many times when God brings those humbling providences into our lives, we respond to them in exactly the wrong way. We try to um, flee, forgetting we can't flee from God. And many times we try to flee from the people that we're embarrassed around, the, the ones that God has humbled us before. So we try to get away from them. So we think they won't know or can't see the humbling circumstances that God has put us in. Well, how is that going to help? 
How is that going to cooperate with what God is doing? We must submit to God's humbling providences. If we, will, if we resist, we will require greater humblings to make us yield. For God is committed to making all his children more and more Christ-like until we get to heaven. And we are Christ-like. And what is Christ-like? Take my yoke and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And so lesson number three, therefore, is cooperate with God in the humbling process. Yes, he's humbling you. Yes, he's humbling me. But cooperate with him in the humbling process. By sweet and humble submission to his sovereign authority and wisdom. The way we develop humility is to recognize God's sovereignty. God's right to do with us as he wills. And God's wisdom to know what we need. Now, we're not always in agreement with God about that. God brings this. That's not what I need, God. I don't want that. I don't need that. I need something else. But, of course, we submit to the superior wisdom of God and say, Okay, God, I acknowledge you're wiser than I am. You know what I need. I must need this because you are bringing it. So I submit. And we cooperate with God in the humbling process through prayer. Prayer properly understood, I think, is a fresh surrender to God's sovereign will every time we pray. I heard that at the Tri-State Fellowship on Monday, and I thought that was so good. That's exactly right. Burley Moore said that. He's right. You can't really pray without first submitting, surrendering yourself again to God's will. That's really what it is. We pray according to his will. Different phrases that are used in the Bible to remind us of this. We pray in Jesus' name. What does that mean? That's surrendering to His will, His authority. And that's really what it boils down to. Every time we pray, we first freshly surrender to God's authority, God's power. We say again, I submit to your sovereign control. I desire your will to be done in my life. That's the attitude for prayer, and in many ways, the very essence of prayer. And in that way, we humble ourselves. We need to develop humility God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. We need to be tying humility on ourselves, clothing ourselves with humility every day. How do we do that? By prayer. By prayer, we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And thirdly, by disciplined obedience. What does that mean? Doing what we know is right when we don't feel like it. I already talked about that earlier. But that's discipline. I know people who come to Sunday morning or maybe Saturday night and they decide, well, will I go to church tomorrow or not? I don't know. Do I feel like it or don't I? Wrong answer. Sometimes, of course, God brings providences that truly make it impossible to come. But that's the wrong attitude. The attitude is, I'm going to be there, whether I feel like it or not, unless God truly stops me. I mean, breaks my leg or something like that, you know. Obviously, Don and Fawcett would like to be here today, but she's, she's in ARMC, room 158, I think. God stopped her from being here today. 
But I've seen her pattern over the years. And I, she doesn't get up on Sunday morning and say, do I feel like going to church today or not? You say, well, maybe she just always feels like it. Well, maybe so. But she's very steady, very faithful, always here. And that's the right attitude. And, and in every area of obedience, we do what God says, not because we always feel like it. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't, frankly. And what we learn to do is to obey whether we feel like it or not. And what is that? That's developing humility. We're surrendering again and again and again. Surrendering God's will, not my will. God's authority, not my authority. God's control, not my control. God's direction in my life, not what I want to do in my life. It's developing humility. And that's a good thing to do because remember, God resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. And so by embracing the humbling circumstances that God brings into our lives and committing our lives to Him regularly in prayer and by disciplining ourselves to do what God tells us to do, we develop the humility that we need. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your, to your elders. Yea, all of you, Submit yourselves to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. O Lord, we need you, and we need to be humbled. We see our pride. We recognize our pride is our biggest enemy. Our pride has caused us virtually all of the problems that we have had throughout life. O Lord, you are right, we are wrong. You are wise, we are foolish. Lord, you know what we need, and we need to be humbled. So humble us, O Lord, and teach us how to clothe ourselves with humility as we ask it in Jesus' name.